Welcome to episode 106 of Paper Talk, a series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the fields of hand paper making and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert, and I run Helen Hebert Studio, a hand paper making studio in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, where I create artist books and installations. I also host the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat and Paper Making Masterclasses here in the studio, and I run a membership program called The Paper Year and teach online classes about paper, light, and books, too. Find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. Today, I'm talking with Jane Ingram Allen, a sculptor and installation artist who uses hand paper making with natural materials and collaborative processes to create indoor and outdoor artworks that raise public awareness about environmental issues. Allen has received numerous awards for residencies and community public art projects in the USA, the Philippines, Japan, Nepal, Brazil, China, Tanzania, Taiwan, Turkey, Indonesia, and other countries. She was a Fulbright Scholar Artist-in-Residence in Taiwan in 2004 and 2005, and a Fulbright Specialist in Turkey in 2015. Jane is a former college art instructor and currently teaches workshops and writes about art for sculpture and other art magazines, as well as doing independent curating. She was born and raised in Alabama and has lived in seven different states and in Taiwan for eight years. Since 2012, she has been based in Santa Rosa, California, and continues showing her work in the U.S. and internationally. Enjoy our conversation. Well, Jane Ingram Allen, welcome to Paper Talk. Thank you. Thank you. Very yeah. Happy. Yeah, it's great to see you. And um, I was trying to remember, I know I met you at least one time. I have an image, uh, but I can't remember where. I'm sure it was at a meeting of the North American Hand Paper Makers. Yeah, it probably was. I've been to several of those and even spoken at some of them. Yeah, yeah right. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I'm looking forward to chatting about your life with paper, and um, let's just start at the beginning and tell me a little bit about where you came from, where you come from, and uh, (laughs) uh, any artistic influences early in life. Okay, I was born and raised in Alabama. I, I was born in the town of Delta, which is just really a crossroads in the countryside, oh. and um, I lived in Birmingham and Sylacauga, and I went to college at Alabama College, it was then, it's now the University of Montevallo, and I majored in art and English. Okay. And, um, you know, my mother was uh, a teacher, an elementary teacher, and she was also a seamstress, and, you know, sewing and quilting and things like that were her artistic outlets but she also was you know pretty good at drawing and painting Mm. and my father he was um a farmer originally and um then during the second world war they moved into the city and so i spent most of my childhood in birmingham and silicaga which were you know more city-like but we still always had a garden Mm-hmm. And uh, my father grew vegetables and my mother grew flowers. And so I grew up with that. And, you know, we would take walks in the woods, even, you know, when we lived in the city. Uh-huh. So, you know, I was always um, interested in nature. 
and um, never really studied um, botany or any of the scientists uh, sciences, um, you know, except just having the normal biology courses in college and that sort of thing. Right, right. And did you did you learn to sew and do any oh, art? Yes, yeah. Yes. yeah. I did sewing and you know, um I learned some quilting. Although mm -hmm. I must confess as a child I never thought quilts were so great. And you know, when I went off to college I I insisted that my parents buy me one store bought blanket <laughs> because I didn't want to just just have a uh, handmade quilt. <laughs> oh, I hear you. My mother baked bread all growing up, and I did not want to take that to school in my lunchbox because I was like yeah. the outcast. Yeah. Now I bake my own bread. But yeah, and yeah. you make quilts, and we'll get to that, right. a different yeah. kind of quilt. Yeah. <laughs> what um? What did your father do when you moved to the city? Um, he... He uh, was an insurance man. He had his oh. own insurance agency for a while. Okay. And, um, you know, was a businessman, essentially. Right, right. And, you know, but he still always um, had a garden. And, you know, I learned how to grow things and, you know. Right. Doing things in the garden with with him as a child and growing up. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. And, um so what did you do after college? Were, were you sort of on the path to become a teacher? Yes. Yeah. And um, my father, you know, was very much um, insisting that I take some education courses, although I never did as an undergraduate, um, because, you know, he was afraid I couldn't get a job. And it, after I graduated, I did end up teaching. And um, I taught um junior high school art and um, then I went back to school to get a master's and ended up getting a master's in art education from the okay. University of Florida and then I was after that um, able to teach in colleges and universities you know mostly community colleges at first and then some universities and um, and how know, did you make the how did you jump to Florida um, my parents moved to Florida oh, okay. because my mother was a teacher and the salaries in Florida were much better. Uh -huh. And I moved to Florida actually because it, the first two years I taught in Alabama, they didn't even have art in the high schools or junior mm -hmm. high schools. Mm -hmm. And I had to teach English and I hated that. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, I, so I also moved to Florida and then, you know, ended up going for the graduate degree at the University of Florida. And it wasn't, you know, a prestigious art school or anything, but it had a, it had an art department. Mm -hmm. And um, there I got into more of the crafts, and I took um, my first weaving class there. Okay. And it was at the time in the occupational therapy department. Uh-huh. And what, I was the first year was art major that ever took weaving. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So it was more like part of home economics, or what was it? Uh, it was in occupational therapy. Occupa oh, sorry, you said that. Yeah. Yeah. Occupational therapy. And what year was this when you were in? 1970. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, um, you know, I really fell in love with textile arts for a uh -huh. while. And then in the 70s and 80s, into the 80s, I was 
um, mainly a fiber artist, although I was combining it with some painting and, you know, other things that I was more used to doing as an art major and an artist. Um, right. And did they embrace that at that time, like your experimental yeah, and coming was, into the weaving occupational department. Yeah, and, yeah. I moved to California to the South Bay area after I got married, um, and I taught uh, fiber arts in some of the community colleges um, in the South Bay. Okay, and I I learned everything um, you know from basketry to quilting to you know tatting. Um, oh yeah. Weaving, spinning, natural uh-huh. dyeing, all of those things. And, you know, I, you can see that in my um, paperwork now. Right, right. Well, and you mentioned that you got married. So um, what does your husband do? Um, my husband at the time was, uh, well, he was a history major. And he taught okay. um, history for the for a while. But then he got into museum management. And he was a museum director for... 20 or 25 years. And okay. that was a good combination. We worked together a lot. I would work in the museums as the art person and he would be the history person and the oh, okay. executive director. Right. Cool. And now he's mostly, um, well, he's retired and he does photography. Right. The time, And he really loves that. And, you know, that's his creative outlet. And he's able to go with me now to to all these different residencies and all over the world. Right. That's what I was wondering. And and I a see photo. his name as your photo credits. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Wonderful. Yeah. Right. And so uh, how did you find, how did you get to paper then? How did you make that transition? Um, making the transition to paper was um, the result of taking a one-day workshop with a visiting artist at the museum we were um, directing at the time. It was Alexandria Museum in Alexandria, Louisiana. Okay. And, um, this one-day workshop, I think I was the only one that signed up for <laughs> and So I sort of had a private um, experience with the teacher. And, you know, I just really was fascinated with papermaking. And, um, you know, I've, at the time was doing weaving, which is a very um, step-by-step controlled um, right. kind of process. And I kept trying to make it more free and spontaneous and, you know, doing various things um, with my weavings. But I just found paper making was, um, you know, very exciting. And it was just another way of using fiber. Right. So who taught that workshop and um, what did you do that in Um, one day? I mean, that's pretty short. Her name was Jean Francis and she was from Mississippi. Uh And she just brought in, you know, some basic paper making. And we did, um, I'm sure we did abaca pulp and maybe some blue jean or other kinds of cotton. Cotton cotton linters were very popular back then. And Mm -hmm. so my first... um, experiences with paper making were mainly with cotton linters and i think you know they're all over the south i think i got them from the place in north carolina at that time right okay so so, so you must have gotten hooked 
and it was hooked? western yeah western, western type of, yeah yeah and i definitely got hooked and after that i just um you know started experimenting on my own and then um my daughter was um, you know just a toddler and i i signed up for a two-week paper making workshop in north Carolina, uh, well in aramont oh yeah it was with elaine koretsky Mm-hmm. And so I, I went there and, you know, just really got into it much um, more deeply. And, you know, from then just, you know, started going on residencies all over the world to do papermaking. It became my main, you know, art form. Right. Uh, so you're about so, the mid 80s. So about the mid 80s. And did Aramont have a fully equipped studio i've taught there but much later so i just um, wonder yeah they did it was uh-huh. it was a very nice studio and okay. um, you know elaine was a great teacher mm-hmm. and um you know we could work at night and right. you know it was just really an immersive experience and it was great for a young mother to be able to get away from it all for those two oh, weeks yeah and again, my husband was very nice to take care of the, I had two at that time. I have a um, a son also who was about four years older. Okay. Yeah. Right. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, and I know you're, you're really into environmental works and mm-hmm. um, does it make sense to talk about how you, how you went in that direction? Was um, that with paper? At yes, first? that was definitely yeah. with paper. Mm-hmm. And um, as I said, I lived in Northern California in the mid seventies, and that was the time when um, you know the Earth Movement was just beginning. Right, right. And Earth Day started in nineteen seventy five. Right. And then you know it it was you know everywhere, and mm-hmm. I think I became much more interested in it then. But my first, um, what I would consider really my environmental projects started as a result of, you know, doing outdoor artworks. And I became much more concerned about the materials I was using and the processes. And, you know, when you put it out into nature, you think about, you know, what you know, oil paints or, you know, other materials that you might be using uh, do, um, especially as, you know, they're left outside in nature. Right. So how did you get into working outside? Um, I was living in central New York at that time. And uh, (laughs) I can't keep track of. I know. I moved all over. Right. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I, I think I said in my bio, I've, lived in you know at least nine or ten states i don't know maybe more right um you know i think working outdoors is what did it and i got into outdoor work because you know that's where the exciting things were happening i did some shows in new york city and installations there Uh uh-huh and um you know, I, I just really like putting paper outdoors, too. There's right. something about the outdoor light mm-hmm. that makes it really exciting and beautiful. 
And, um, you know, I, I use some of my basketry techniques also in my outdoor works and work with, you know, branches from trees and vines and um, other, you know, natural materials. Right. And these are works that remain outdoors and then just change over time. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. When I was doing the first outdoor pieces, I would always try to think of some way I could make paper permanent, mm-hmm. whatever permanent is. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I was using things like polyurethane that you could put on the paper and coat it, uh-huh. and it, it would make it paper, uh, the paper water resistant, but it was never uh, something that was permanent. And right. um and then I decided that I would just go with this quality of non-permanence, mm-hmm. paper being a natural material that could biodegrade right. and start making things that were meant to decompose, right? To go back into the soil and, you know, maybe actually benefit the earth instead mm-hmm. of, you know, making art that was potentially part of the problem of pollution yeah. and you know, um, not being good for the environment. Right. And so my first um, environmental piece was in 1995. And it was when I was the art teacher at one of the SUNY branches, State University of New York in Morrisville, which is in central New York. Okay. And um, I made a piece for Earth Day, the Mm -hmm. 25th anniversary in Mm -hmm. 1995 and I did it with my students and we collaborated with the um, landscape design department they had and we made what we called an earth quilt which was a huge uh, circular piece of paper that had seeds for wildflowers in it in the same colors you know like we use blue wildflowers for the oceans and yellow and oranges and reds oh. and purples for the continents. And I did the the design we did was the Western Hemisphere. And I still have some old pictures of that, but it but it actually worked. And um and they grew in those colors in those areas. In those oh how cool. And you could kind of see the outline of the continents and the you know ocean in this uh-huh. living map. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And um, so seed papers are really popular today, but do you, how did you come up with that? And do you think, was anyone doing that besides you? No, I don't, not that I know of. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't see any of it at that time. Uh Um, Now, like you say, it's, it's quite popular. Yeah. You know, I get um, inquiries quite often from, people who say, you know, I want to do a project with some seeds in the handmade paper and how do I do that? And, you know, so it, it has um, become, you know, something that more and more artists are trying. Yeah. And there are products that people are making too. Yeah. yeah yes. Cards seed, and seed, seed bombs card. and all kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when did you, uh, do you still teach, or when did you s- sort of stop teaching um, and start doing residencies, or did you kind yeah. of do both? Well, when my daughter graduated from high school in 1996, that was when I first 
started going overseas. Before that, I'd been to a few in the U.S. Okay. But, um, I went to the Philippines first in 1996 for a residency, and it was just one month. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I really enjoyed the experience. There's something about going to a you know a really different place that is inspiring, and you know, finding new materials, new ways of working. It was you know something I really enjoyed. Yeah, so I've yeah. done lots of residencies, as you know. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and I know you've worked with a lot of plant fibers, and so so when did that kind of happen? You mentioned early on, you learned the Western paper making. But yeah. When did you move into? I mean, it makes sense because you're yeah. making environmental well, in the art. Philippines, they had learned their paper making from Japanese paper makers, so they were using um, you know plant materials from there, um, and you know, using Japanese techniques and also Kozo. But I went to Japan in 1999 for the residency that was called the Mino Paper Art Village Project. Okay, yeah. And that was a great um, kind of fellowship award. Um, And you spent three months in Japan in a paper-making village. Um, And... They actually didn't want for this program artists that knew how to make paper. They okay. wanted to teach you their way, and um, they wanted artists who could use Mino paper. But they, I was, I think, one of the only Americans who's ever been there, and um, they thought, you know, I could do it. So I was there with six other artists from, you know, many different countries and some Japanese artists. Learning paper making, and we um, learned it at the Mino Washi Museum. Okay, and we had a a working space in the city of Mino where we could um, do our own paper making. So that was a great experience. Yeah, Yeah. and did you have to do a project at the end, or I did a lot of projects there in Mm -hmm. three months, and um, um, I I did an outdoor installation at that time I was really into birds and I did a bird I'm making paper birds and mm-hmm. polyurethaning them and putting them on the, the bridge along the handrails uh-huh. on the bridge there in Mino city. Uh-huh. Um, I didn't do any of the uh, things with seeds in the paper then. Okay. But I did several projects. I did a, a project that was, when we were, you know, going through the 2000, into the year 2000, and I made one project that was 2,000 handmade paper leaves mm. that were red on one side and green on the other. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I I uh, exhibited that in Japan and also in New York in several places when I got back. And, uh, and where did you make that in Japan or where did you make yes, those? I made yeah. it in Japan. Okay, okay. All right. And, and <laughs> yeah. And you're always having to think about transportation. Most of your, um, most of your work um, is in pieces and yeah, it's can fit in a suitcase modular. Yeah. 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 yeah I like working that way because you can make really big pieces, but they're still 
easy to transport and store. Right. store. Right. You know, I've had studios all over the world and, um, you know, it's always a problem to store the work, but right. most of my works do fold up. Um, I just happen to have one here that I, it's in a paper bag, you know, uh-huh. an ordinary oh, yeah. grocery bag. Right. When you take it out and unfold it, it becomes, you know, over six feet long and three feet wide. Right. But it's made on, you know, one eight and a half by 11 mold. And I still use my weaving because it's joined with thread. Uh-huh. So fold at the string parts and you can take it with you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I love that. I also like working modular. Um, yeah, yeah. Partly because making huge sheets of paper is yeah. physically taxing and you need more equipment and space and all of that. And then what, what do you do with it when yeah. you finish yeah. exhibiting it? Yeah. Right. Right. Some I've rolled up as scrolls, but right. you know it's 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 a problem. But I love making big sheets, and I still teach that and still do that for some mm-hmm. reason. Mm-hmm. And was that first um, living map? Was that a big sheet? Yeah, it was yeah. about um, ten feet across uh, diameter. Yeah, so it was big, but but we made it in sections even okay. then. Yeah. And put it together on the earth and staked yeah. it down so it would stay in place until it started growing. Right. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah. And you're doing more of that, which we'll get to. But um, so let's talk a little bit more about the residencies and and um, like, do you, do you have a strategic plan? You're still doing them. Yeah. Um, like. Yeah, like just, how do you decide um, what to apply for and how's the funding work a little bit about that? Right. Well, most I'm, you know, I'm not wealthy and, and, mm-hmm. you know, we've always worked in the nonprofit field, so never made much money. So I depend on grants and mm-hmm. fellowships and mm-hmm. I've been really lucky in, in getting those, but a lot of it is just finding the opportunity that fits. Right. This um, first one I did in the Philippines was actually an ad in Sculpture Magazine. And they wanted an artist who knew um, weaving and paper making because they were also doing shihu, which is the weaving with paper thread. Right. So I thought, oh, this sounds perfect for me. (laughs) I'm a weaver. uh, Yeah. As well as a paper maker, I had been a weaver. And so I applied for it and I got a letter at that time, you know, it was still mail mail. And I got a letter back from the um, director there who was Michael Parsons at the Duntag Foundation. Okay. And he, he offered me the residency. Uh um, He said he would pay for the plane fare and give me a place to live and work. And he would also pay for my husband to go. Oh, and okay. I said, oh, that's great, because I really would be, um, you know, a little anxious about going by myself um, mm-hmm. for that, for one, it was a one month residency. Okay. And since then, I've just continued, you know, looking at opportunities. 
And I don't limit myself to looking at those that say they want a paper maker or a fiber artist or any particular kind of artist because, um, you know, I mainly look at the place and if there's any funding and, um, you know, if it's something that would be interesting uh, for me and for the potential to make paper there with different plants. And I got into, you know, using, uh, you know, starting with the plant. I don't know. I guess that's part of my Southern upbringing too. Mm -hmm. You know, we were always, my mother had an expression, making it from scratch. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the way you cook. You start with the raw ingredients and make it um, all from the very beginning. So that was very exciting to me to be able to, you know, just take some um, almost dead leaves or trimmed branches and turn it into something really nice. Yeah, yeah, and I, you did a lot of plant paper making on your Fulbright. Yes. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, um, I got the Fulbright grant um, in two thousand and three, oh four, that mm-hmm. period, and um, it was actually the third time I had applied for the Fulbright grant, and you know it's like the third time's the charm. Yeah, but we tried for a Fulbright to Taiwan, uh, for Japan, and also to Thailand. And the other times, you know, I'd gone through the whole process and um, gotten into the finalist, but wasn't selected by the the final uh, decision that's made by the country. Mm-hmm. But um, Taiwan, I did you know, get the Fulbright. And my proposal was to do a project I called Made in Taiwan. Uh (laughs) And I was sort of playing with that whole thing. You know, when I grew up, Made in Taiwan means it was a cheap plastic trinket. Right. I wanted to go back um, and actually make my art with materials from Taiwan that were found there and growing there or collected there. Ah, and so I propose to you know um, go from the plant to paper, and you know I was making what I call site maps. Okay, and um, I it was sort of a term I made up because I wanted to make a map, a kind of map of the place using only materials that were found in that place. Mm-hmm. So I, I started with making the material from the plants I collected there and then also collecting, you know, other natural and, you know, man-made materials in the place and in, in making these. They were sort of maps. I mean, you couldn't find your way with them. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but you could definitely see a place and it was a way of connecting my work to the place and to the time that you were there right so it sounds like did you move from place to place well the first year i stayed on the fulbright in taiwan it was mainly in taipei okay and um you know there's a lot there yeah but then the second year i got the fulbright renewed which was very uh, unusual Mm. 
but they really liked what I was doing. And and I, the second Fulbright went all over the island of Taiwan to 14 different communities okay. and had a host organization in each place and, um, you know, set up a temporary paper making studio and, you know, usually taught the local people how to make uh-huh. paper from the plants that were growing there. So was that part of it was uh, engaging the local yeah. population? Yeah. Yeah. I I really like working with people and, you know, getting them to be part of the project. And I know right. you, you've done some of that yourself. Yeah. And, um, you know, when you're working modular, it's just kind of a perfect thing to do. You know, mm-hmm. they can make parts of the quilt squares or the right. part of the leaves if I'm making 2,000 leaves. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, so I usually would, you know, teach paper making to local people, you know, sometimes housewives, sometimes artists, um, as I was doing this project. And I did a few projects in Taiwan that had seeds in the pulp. Okay. It would be sort of maps, you know, mm-hmm. taking from my first uh, earth quilt that I made mm-hmm. in central New York. Um, I would make rivers, too. I oh. made one project that I called Blue River in Taipei that first year. It was a huge, long river in one of the city parks. Um, and we did it on Earth Day. Uh-huh. In 2004. And then it bloomed like a river. And then it bloomed like a living river of blue in the green landscape of Uh the park. Did you? uh, Oh, sorry. But, you know, it was was kind of funny because I did it in a city park. And, you know, we got a few blooms that started. But one Monday morning, the city parks people came in with their lawnmowers. And didn't know it was an artwork, and they cut the whole field. <laughs> oh, so no. It never really recovered well after that. So um, I learned from that that it was very important to put up some signs. Right. Said, this is an artwork. <laughs> please, please don't mow here. Oh, something. my gosh. Yeah. But, you know, when you do things out in public, um, you just really never know what's Right, right. Um, I was curious about whether you went through any trial and error with getting things to grow. Like, have these always succeeded or do you put like extra seeds to make sure? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's always uh, a gamble, you know, whether it's going to grow. Uh-huh. Usually now I'm using uh, some potting soil or some soil that's made for raised beds and you know it will grow, but sometimes, you know, it's difficult to get things to grow or to sprout. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're really working with nature as yeah. a part of it. If right. you have flooding conditions, like sometimes in Taiwan, it would just wash away. Right. Um, and here in California, we have drought conditions a lot. And so, you know, you have to um, work with nature. And, right. Um, you know, sometimes you can do things to help, but it's it's always a chance um, that you take. But I, I find that exciting and interesting. Right, right. Even, you know, if you get a few blooms and then 
you know, I use a lot of perennials as well as well as the annual mm-hmm. plants for the seeds. So it comes back every year and mm. and usually gets better. Oh, yeah. As more and more uh, plants are established in the bed. And, you know, usually when I'm doing these projects, I don't get to see the the blooming. Mm-hmm. And right. I depend on people there to send me photos. And that's not always so great. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's hard right. to get photos. But I've done some now in um, Santa Rosa, California, where I'm living now. Mm-hmm. And I've been able to document this one for it was put in in 2018, so it's going five years now. Okay, I want to I want to get to that, but I wanted to ask you one more thing about um, equipment. Like when you're when you were in Taiwan, like how mm-hmm. do you go about setting up your paper making studio? Japan, okay. it sounded like they probably they had, had yeah, stuff. Yeah, a lot of stuff. Um, I bring the very basic necessities in the suitcase. Uh-huh. I usually bring a blender, uh-huh. and I bring um, eight and a half by eleven moles and decals, and um, a wooden hammer that okay. I found. Yeah. Um, and formation aid powder. Okay. Bring, um, and then usually I depend on the local place to find cooking pots mm-hmm. and vats or right or plastic bins and buckets and right okay all the other stuff but yeah if you have your mold and decal you can pretty much make do with what you want right 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 okay and you can put it in the suitcase yeah (laughs) yeah this episode of paper talk is sponsored by the red cliff paper retreat an annual retreat held at Helen Hebert's studio in the heart of the Rocky Mountains of Colorado in late August. Enjoy a peaceful, creative week in the tiny hamlet of Redcliffe, surrounded by mountains, the river, and aspen trees. Experiment with several techniques as you create a variety of paper objects that will intrigue your eyes and illuminate your spirit. All levels of art experience are invited. The 2023 retreat theme is Paper Panels. Come explore a variety of papers that can be made by hand, cut, folded, stitched, and assembled in a variety of ways to create books, wall hangings, sculpture, lighting, and more. Explore these ideas as you create unique paper objects with a dozen like-minded creatives. Find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com backslash red-cliff-paper-retreat. Okay, so yeah, let's turn then to your living quilts projects and how did how did those kind of come about? Well, it developed from the um, the earth quilt mm-hmm. in nineteen ninety five, and I I started doing um, quilts, I guess, in uh, two thousand and three, when I was invited to do a project in Sumter, South Carolina. And, you know, quilting is um, very big in that part of the world. And so I decided I would make a paper quilt. Right. And put seeds in the pulp in the same colors as the pattern and then leave it, you know, 
to decompose as mulch and the plants to come up and bloom. And I decided at that time to make a bed with it. You know, this is really just making a flower bed. It's sort of a different way of doing it. Right. <laughs> but um, so I made a headboard and a footboard. Okay. Using some branches and vines that I found there in South Carolina. And um, it it was really exciting to make it. It becomes a real sculptural piece and the headboard and footboard gives it more of a presence. And, and then right. you know, putting the quilt on the bed became sort of a ritual performance involving the community too. You know, we laid down the squares on Earth Day and, you know, staked them in the ground and then watered it, did a sort of ceremonial water yeah. to get it started. Uh-huh. You mentioned the pattern. Where did the pattern come from? Um, well, sometimes I would use traditional um, quilt patterns mm -hmm. and sometimes, you know, just my own variations. But I would usually make the pattern have some connection to the place. Uh-huh. And in South Carolina, I was working with the the local schools, the high school and, and one elementary school. And so I had um, teams of students who designed each square. So it was like a, wow. a album quilt or a friendship quilt. Each yeah. square was different, oh. but we used red, blue, and yellow and white paper. And I found blue flower seeds and yellow ones and red ones and white oh. ones. It would grow there in South Carolina well. Yeah. And, you know, use those. So that was exciting. But in other places, you know, I've designed it um, and used, um, you know, sort of traditional squares. Like um, I did one in Sojourner Truth uh, Community Park in Sacramento recently that was in honor of um, Sojourner Truth, who was one of the abolitionists and a former slave herself. Mm. And so I used the North Star quilt pattern, mm. which is, according to some stories, one of the quilts that used to mark the way north and the, uh -huh. um, the you know, when they were trying, the slaves were escaping to freedom it was used you know as part of the underground railroad oh yeah wow so you know every time i design the the quilt um for each living quilt i try to make it have some connection to the place and you know what's happening there right know? and are you are you laying wet, fresh sheets of paper in the ground or are you drying them first? No, they're dried. Okay. And, you know, when you put seeds in the paper, you have to dry it pretty right. fast. Right. And I usually put it on, cooch it onto Pellon and hang it up on a clothesline to dry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, then again, you can take the squares anywhere. Right. You have them. Usually they're about 20 or 24 inch squares. Mm -hmm. I make. Sometimes I've made them smaller or larger. Mm -hmm. um, and this uh, one I did in 2021, I actually did remotely by computer. Oh. I sent it to, I made the quilt squares here. You know, I worked with the people on the Zoom meetings and we designed the quilt. 
uh, and it was done in Switzerland. And, so uh, they made the paper or you made the no, paper? I made the paper. You made the paper in Senate. Okay. But we worked they designed it. Design. Okay. And then I sent the squares in a big package to them. Mm -hmm. And then one Saturday morning in April, we had a Zoom meeting and I directed them how to lay it down and, you know, in a sort of ceremony with the public. Uh. And they, they continued caring for it, watering it. And I have pictures of it blooming that, that summer. And they kept yeah. it for two years uh. there in the park um, uh -huh. in Switzerland. Wow. Yeah. And listeners will put pictures of some of these projects in the yeah. show notes. If you go to my website and click on podcast, you'll find this episode. Um, so how do you, how are you getting these living quilt projects and how many have you done? Like, tell me how you got the one in Switzerland. Well, it was through an artist that I had met um, through inviting her to do a project I was doing in Taiwan as a curator. And okay. after I was off the Fulbright, I continued working in Taiwan as an independent curator and an independent artist. And um, so it was Judith Villager, who is um, now running an art center in a small town in Switzerland called Steckborn, and it's okay. on Lake Constance, okay. which is at the border between Switzerland and Germany. I think I w went there once, yes. Yeah. It's wow. a beautiful place. And, you know, I was going to go there and do this all there. Like right. I right. And get to visit you did again. Mm -hmm. And, um, but COVID happened. And yeah. We weren't able to travel. Right. So she arranged for me just to get a small grant anyway to help pay for materials and mm -hmm. you know, the shipping. And so I made it here and shipped it to her in Switzerland and they they installed it and cared for it and took pictures of it. Right. So it was great to be uh, able to do that during the the height of the pandemic. <laughs> right. Wow. Yeah. How creative mm -hmm. we got. Yeah. And so about how many living quilts have you done? Um gee, I haven't even counted them. <laughs> uh approximate. A dozen? Maybe. Yeah, maybe that many. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And, you know, in the beginning, they weren't really quilts. I think the name Living Quilt um, started in Newnan, Georgia. I got an invitation and a fellowship to go to Newnan, Georgia for a residency. Uh -huh. And um, one of the women that was uh, on their board and a volunteer with their organization she sort of coined the name Living Quilt. Uh-huh. And I thought it was a great, great name. Yeah. And I've used that since then. That right. was in 2018, I think, that I first started calling okay. them Living Quilts. Right. And you mentioned the headboard and footboard, and I've seen pictures. Is that mm -hmm. is that a normal thing that you do now? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I enjoy that process. It yeah. some of my weaving skills and my basket making right. skills. Right. And um so I enjoy making the bed as right. well as making the quilt to cover the bed. Right. And you know, then it becomes a sculpture installation. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, you notice that I, I call my work usually sculpture installation. And mm-hmm. it's it's not just paper art. It's not just painting. It's not just weaving. But right. it's, it's a combination of many different techniques. And I kind of use whatever's needed. Um, you know, to make the quilt patterns, I use stencils to do uh, the paper making. And you Yeah, know tell me a little bit about that process so you 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 form a sheet and then um i i cut the stencils with that buttercut stuff right it's really um handy you can stick it to the screen so it's sort of like doing silk screen which was a process i was familiar with as an and as as an artist um but you're actually making the pattern in the paper. And, so you're uh, so are you using the buttercut and listeners, buttercut is a thin rubber material that uh-huh. has an adhesive on it and you're sticking uh-huh. it on your mold. And right. then are you the paper is just going into where the buttercut is not? Is that yes. how you're using it? Okay. Yes. Because yes. I use it for watermarks. So I just wanted to yeah. distinguish. Well it's sort so of you're making thing. a shaped Shaped paper. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I can send you some pictures of that or close-ups yeah. of it. So yeah, you that'd be great. See, see how the screens look. Yeah. And usually, you know, I have primarily four colors, white, red, blue, and yellow. Mm-hmm. And then I compose the squares from those colors and, you know, have one screen for each color and one tub of pulp with the seeds for the wildflowers in that color in it. Right. And what kind of pulp are you using now? Um, for the quilts, I'm usually using something um, that is uh, easily available. Abaca is my favorite. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'll use blue jean pulp. It's mm-hmm. cotton, denim, blue jeans, usually cut up and processed. But um and sometimes I use some Kozo and other plant uh-huh. fibers that I find in the place. And a right. lot of times I make the border from pulp that I cook up. It's oh, okay. you know, kind of a brown or beige color. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I dye the pulp instead of pigment it. Oh, and okay. It's kind of strange. Most paper makers use pigments. Right. But I really like dyeing it because you get more transparency and the colors are more vivid, um, uh-huh. just livelier colors, or and at what, least they are to me. What kind of dyes are you using? I use um, something that's non-toxic. I use fiber reactive um, dyes uh-huh. because they're cold water dyes and, you know, retention agent, just like you do with pigmenting. Uh-huh. And I've used some natural dyes. Of course, indigo with the blue jeans is natural dye. Right. Now, my latest thing is I want to go more to natural dyeing with all of these projects. Mm-hmm. Because even though it's non-toxic and doesn't harm the earth, the fiber-reactive dye still uses um, you know, oil-based products. Right. And... You know, I think even though natural dyeing still uses some mordants that are not really good for the earth, it might be better. 
<laughs> it's yeah. all a matter of balance. I exactly. Think. Yeah. It seems like there's always something. Right. Um, yeah. And we have to make uh, choices mm -hmm. as an artist, mm -hmm. you know, and, and what you want to do and how it's going to affect uh, the environment or the ecological system. Right. And especially when you start putting your work outside. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I know you were recently in Costa Rica. Tell me about that residency. Yeah, that was in January and February of this year. So it okay. was for me a great time to go to Costa Rica and, you know, you could work outdoors there. It was the height of summer oh, and I really you. enjoyed, um, Costa Rica. It's a beautiful country and one I'd always wanted to go to. Mm -hmm. And it was actually um, an opportunity that was listed on the IAPMA site, I-A-P-M-A. -A. Right. And, um, another papermaking artist had gone there, Ida Bernard. Um, oh, uh-huh. And so she wrote a kind of small ad for Oh, the newsletter. And I read that. And, you know, I've been thinking about Costa Rica is, is such a great country for ecology and environmental things and nature. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to go there. And so I applied for that and received the invitation. And it um, was at a place that's not really set up as a residency. Mm. Um it's called the Green Diamond in French, and the woman is French. Uh huh. So she speaks French really well, and a little English and a little Spanish. And she's now living in Costa Rica, in Uvita, which is on the southwest Pacific coast in Costa okay. Rica. And um, she had had one paper making artist, so she thought, well, you know, she could have another one. <laughs> <laughs> And um, the facilities there were not great, and uh -huh. the accommodations were not great, <laughs> but it was an opportunity to be there, and I really, really enjoyed it. And I also, um, the woman who runs it, Marie Sarat, is also a dancer and a choreographer, mm. and so she had a great, you know, place for dancing but no real studio space. So I've worked on a uh, one table and outside in the garden and on the tile floor of the porch um, to do my paper making. And we collaborated. This was another thing that was attractive about the, uh -huh. the residency in Costa Rica. It was a chance to collaborate with a choreographer and a dancer to make some artwork that was specifically meant for movement. Oh. And before I'd done some pieces a long time ago, collaborating with photographer, I mean, choreographers and musicians, but it was usually they would see my, my installation and then uh -huh. think, oh, this would be great for some, for some music. Right. So they, they would, um, call me and, and um, say, you know, could you let me have this installation right. on stage and, you know, do some dance uh, work with it. 
So and this was more integral where you yeah, yeah we were made the, and you said she didn't speak much English. Is that right? Well, her English was okay, but okay. not great, but we communicated. Yeah. And um it it was fun to, you know, kind of decide with her and it, watching her movement. It's modern dance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, thinking about how you could make paper that would move. Yeah. And um, I used uh, the idea I'd used a lot before of joining it with thread so that, you know, you can fold it up and take it with you mm-hmm. and that it, it would bend and flow and, you know, not harm the paper. And I used mostly Japanese paper making techniques. Uh-huh. I brought some Koza with me in the in the suitcase and I did actually find a mulberry tree there. Uh-huh. It was a different mulberry, black mulberry. Uh-huh. But, and then I used, I think, six different plants there to mm-hmm. make some of the paper for this this project. And did uh, is there any documentation of the project? Was there a uh, final performance? Um, or? Well, we did a lot of rehearsal kind of performances, and uh-huh. I have some documentation of that. Uh-huh. And um, the first real premiere, of course, she's still working on the actual movement and, you know, experiencing using the handmade paper construction. Right. And, um, you know, so it's a process for her, too. Yeah. The premiere of this will be in Havana, Cuba. Oh. She got invited to, to a performance art festival there that will be um i think about the second week in may i can send you the information about that too yeah and so hopefully they will get some good video you know i just took some iphone video right right which is not not really good (laughs) and then tim my husband took uh some photographs that right and some of that's up on my blog um the wordpress site now Okay, yeah, we will definitely put your give to everybody. We'll put the link in the show notes to your blog and um, Instagram and Facebook. It was a great experience. And, you know, it gets harder um, to do these residencies as you get older. But we were happy and, you know, got through it and uh, had a great time. Right. Yeah. Do you have plans for another one? Um, or? I'm planning to go to Taiwan again in November and December for an exhibition that I will have at a foundation there. Oh, and yeah. And tell me about this project you're working on. It's um a project I'm calling In Deep Water. Mm-hmm. And it's about water problems and connected to the environment. And I'm working with a printmaker. This is also a collaborative project. Mm -hmm. A local printmaking artist, her name is Jamie Tabak, T-A-B-A-C-K. And Jamie and I have been working, you know, it's kind of of started during the pandemic. Um, We would um, make sure we were both um, COVID-free and meet up once a week or so for paper making and printmaking activities. Mm-hmm. I would go to her studio for printmaking and she would come to my studio for paper making. And 
you know, I learned a lot more about printmaking and she learned how to make paper. And, you know, we did this project about water um, because we were both very concerned um, about water problems in California. You know, yeah. we had fires here in Santa right. Rosa and all over. And um, I'd also been to Africa, to Tanzania, mm. which is a part of the world where you usually um, have a lot of trouble finding fresh water. Mm -hmm. And uh, water has to be hauled for great distances. So um, we both decided that we wanted to focus our artwork on water for a while. And so we've been doing this since, I guess it started in August of 2021. And, and we, what is it? What is it that you're making? Um, we make panels um, mm -hmm. that sort of represent, like, could be a waterfall, it could be a river, uh -huh. and it's in all shades of blue. Mm -hmm. And um, the paper sometimes has stencils with shapes in it. Sometimes mm -hmm. it has printed imagery. Mm -hmm. They're all joined with threads. And um, they can also fold up. Right. And we've um, sent them for exhibitions in a package by mail. Right. And given instructions. And then we've also installed it in several different places here in California near to, near to us. Uh -huh. It's right now in, in San Francisco. Okay. At a, a nonprofit gallery space. And um, then in November, December, it's going to Taiwan. And we are hoping to go to Taiwan with it to mm -hmm. install it as a site-specific piece and maybe do some workshops and demonstrations right. of our techniques that we've um, developed for making paper that sort of represents water in all uh -huh. its varieties. Uh -huh. You know, I use water drops in it, um, uh -huh. squirt bottles, stencils, um, you know, different kinds of pulp. And, you know, it's it's mostly all Japanese papermaking techniques, but very non-traditional. Mm -hmm. And one of the very non-traditional things we've done that I had done a little bit of before is actually burning handmade paper. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a thing that I I first um, learned to do sort of from having to make a piece fireproof, a piece of handmade paper art uh -huh. that I did for a New York City subway station. Oh. And um, they told me the fire marshal would come in and torch it, you know, trying to see if it was <laughs> flammable. Uh-huh. And so I, I learned about um, the same kind of material that you put on for kids' pajamas to fireproof them. And I said, well, you know, paper is just another form of fiber. Right. So I painted that on the handmade paper and then, you know, tried to light it with a match and it put it out. So. <laughs> Was it, it that was stuff that Carriage House carried for a long time, Roscoe Flamex or yeah, something? They, they have it now, but yeah. back then I had to order it from some other. Okay. Uh, yeah. Other. Right. 
I found that did have flame proofing, and it's a kind of salt. It it um, it's not toxic or anything, mm-hmm. but it but it really works for paper making as well as for fabric. Right. We all own any natural fiber. Uh huh. And I the fire marshal tested it. Yeah. Yeah. And. and um, so I was able to make this piece flame proof and I polyurethaned it with a water-based uh, polyurethane. And so it was waterproof too. They could hose down the subway ramp. It was hanging over a ramp. Okay. New York City subway station for about five years oh. in the early 80, 82, I think, to 87 is when it was. And um, so in this water project, I felt like we should use some burning because we've had so many wildfires right. in Northern California. And um, so we would treat parts of the paper with the, the flame-proofing liquid and then, you know, burn it. And you get beautiful charred edges, oh. holes oh. that, you know, just... You can't get any other way. Right. And then we were tearing it and, you know, using oh, interesting. holes in it as well oh. because of the properties of light coming through the paper. Right, right. And that's another thing I loved in Costa Rica was the beautiful light mm. and making mm-hmm. paper that had holes in it. I even did a little burning there, not not a whole lot. Right. <laughs> oh, Wonderful. Wow. And you said, are you seeking funding to go to Taiwan? You say you're hoping to go. Yeah. Yeah. We are trying to get some funding. Mm -hmm. Um, The foundation is um, paying our airfare and accommodations, but um, we're trying to get some funding for the workshops and the materials and that sort of thing. Right. Right. No. You know, it's always a process when you make, um, mostly installation art or you make art that decomposes <laughs> right you're not, <laughs> you're not selling not it sell. yeah a long right. Shot anyway right um so you know you kind of depend on grants and yeah and that sort of thing right now i know you do a little bit of you mentioned the independent curating and you do a little writing also right yes i do and um you know i got into that um after writing for sculpture about my own work, I decided, well, you know, why not just write about some of the people that I like and uh, find on my travels? And so I've been doing that, I guess, since 1996, after coming back from the Philippines. Um, and, and who are you writing for? Sculpture Magazine. Sculpture and- Magazine and others, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes Public Art Review, mm-hmm. um, Fiber Art Now. Okay. I've written several things for hand paper making magazine. Right, right. And there's a magazine called Fiber Art Now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've even written for Art in America <laughs> a couple of times. Oh yeah. But, but you know, it's it's not something that's um, going to ever be able to to support you. But it right. is another way of an artist um, living yeah. or finding some way to live. Yeah, teaching, uh, writing, um, you know, all kinds of jobs 
that are related to right what I'm doing as an artist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've done curators in museums. I've been education curator, art curator. Um, and a lot of times I've been fortunate enough to work part-time and then, you know, have time to devote to my artwork also. Right, right. Are your children in any art-related field? I'm just curious. Um, yeah. I don't think mine will be, but... You know, no, they grew up with art and yeah. go to too many openings. <laughs> but um, my son is a musician. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. Um, he he's a photographer sometimes too, and he, he likes art. And mm-hmm. uh, But we've collaborated on a lot of projects um, that use sound and art together. And right. my daughter... My daughter is an animal person, and she majored in animal behavior, and she's oh. now working in the healthcare field. Okay. She was working for guide dogs for the blind. Oh, and um, then she got her shoulder injured and had to retrain, and mm. so now she's. Um, and it's funny; they're both now into very technical stuff mm-hmm. with computers. Right. My son runs his own computer business although he still does his music on the side. And, um, you know, and my daughter is into the healthcare field after animal behavior. But, yeah, you're right. Um, You know, they didn't elect to go into art making and, you know, nonprofit museum management. Right. (laughs) They saw how hard that is, I guess. (laughs) Um, Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, let's uh let's move on to your recommendations. Okay. And you uh, I thought this is interesting. You use mesh lingerie bags. I use paint straining bags. Yeah. But uh I was thinking I, I've had those bags and they have a zipper. Do you use those yeah. kind that yeah, yeah. Yeah. They fit perfectly over a bucket. Right. And so it's real easy to, you know, strain your pulp, you know, just pull it out of the bucket and you have right. it in the strainer bag and you can, you know, wash it over and over again to right. get it um, easily clean if you're mm-hmm. you know, cooking your own pulp. Mm-hmm. And it's really funny. Um, I've made a lot of bags myself that are, are giant size out of just, you know, ordinary fiberglass screening. Right. Um, and, you know, I first saw that in the Philippines when I went there in 1996. And they were washing after they cooked their fibers in the alkaline. They would take these huge, um, you know, garbage can size bags, uh, screening bags, uh-huh. take them down to the river or the stream. Right. And hold it to or three people. Yeah. This big bag of fibers in the stream until it was clear. Oh, and yeah. It was kind of fun. You know, you got to wade in the water. Right. And uh, do that, but I felt like, well, this is polluting the stream. Uh-huh. It was, you know, clear, rushing water. And um, then I got the idea, well, you know, you could make your own bags, and they were much easier to carry around than, than a, a metal strainer. Yeah, and right. Then I found these metal, uh, these cloth um sort of lingerie bags that you can find you know most any home supply store 
um, and they they're easy to carry and they fit over a bucket. So I, I think I started using those when I was in Taiwan. Right. And I continued using them. And you know, strainers are okay, but you can't take it with you. Right. And right. No, that's a great inner bag will hold more usually too. Right. Yeah, and then you also mentioned um uh the mallets. Like do oh, you, yeah. you seek um, out mallets wherever you yeah. are? At first <laughs> I would try, you know, just the ordinary mallets you can buy in the hardware store. Yeah. Wood. You know, I think wood is much better and it's easier on the arm when you're mm -hmm. hand beating. Right. But um, one time in a flea market, I found this beautiful um, wooden mallet that may have been used as a big pestle um, mm. for grinding up something. Mm -hmm. And it was all one piece. Mm -hmm. So that's my favorite um, hammer for hand beating now. It's just the right weight, the right shape, and I can carry it in the suitcase easily. Yeah. And then since then, I've kept an eye out in all kinds of flea markets and, you know, garage sales for wooden mallets. Because, you know, if you get one of those that's in two two pieces, it's not one piece of wood. Usually after a while, the, the handle the, falls off. Yeah. The handle falls off. Yeah. Or it sticks to the pole. Yeah. And, yeah. I've had that happen. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can just use like a kid's wooden baseball bat, too. Right. If right. you can find that anymore. Or right. Yeah. The best is to carve something yourself mm -hmm. out mm -hmm. of a two by four. Right. And, you know, make it all one piece of hardwood. Yeah. And again, you can get an axe handle, which is made of hardwood mm -hmm. in the hardware store and use right. that for a beater. Yeah. Great point. Yeah. Yeah, and I wanted to circle back around to what you said about um, not just applying to paper mm -hmm. opportunities, because I really appreciate that. And yeah, mm -hmm. you're a sculptor and an installation artist, and there are so many opportunities out there that paper might be an attractive thing for the funder or the yeah. article or whatever it is. It would be a different so, yeah. We, we need to be getting paper out into other areas. So you yeah. mentioned something else that you you write about and you follow other contemporary artists. Mm -hmm. um, so just yeah, tell me about a couple of those. Some of your best um, ideas from yeah. going to see other kinds of art exhibits. Right. right. Um, and, you know, I, I think one of the questions you asked were, who were some of your favorite artists? Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I thought of, uh, immediately of Anne Hamilton, yeah, who is a great installation artist. And I've visited many of her installations and written about them uh, for magazines. But one of her favorite pieces that I know about that I've never actually seen is the one where she used some kind of um, machine and attached it near the ceiling and had paper in it and it would sift out papers every once in a while on a sort of timed random pattern and they were all over this huge kind of warehouse space i think it was in um 
that place in Massachusetts, you know, that has the huge installation. Yeah, Mass Mocha. Mass yeah, Mocha. I know what you're talking about. I'll find a link to that. And I love yeah. that piece and yeah. the whole idea of that. And just using the idea that paper does float so beautifully. Right. And especially yeah. if it's Kozo or Japanese made uh -huh. paper. <laughs> and right. you put some holes in it. Mm -hmm. And I actually used that when I was working with the choreographer mm. in Costa Rica yeah. and putting holes in it so that the paper could float yeah. beautifully. Right. And um, nature and the wind and so on. Right. And then um, the other artist that I, I really like is Olafar Eliasson, who is originally from Finland and now living in Germany and does installations both indoors and outdoors all over the world. And, um, you know, his work is really fascinating. Right. And I think, you know, he uses, I remember one installation I saw in his early days at a, the ICA in Boston before it moved to the new place was what looked like just uh, a big tub of oil but it was water that had been dyed and and you know just the the idea of using water or liquid as an installation yeah in yeah interesting right and, you know since then he's done a lot of really interesting pieces he's very interested in light also mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um so i think those are two that I know, and of course, there are many um, artists that are much more contemporary that we see. And I think now the whole field of contemporary art is more open. Mm -hmm. It's more multicultural. And, you know, we see crafts as art much more than we used to. Right, right. So I think looking at any kind of art is good. And, you know, you can take from it, you know, new ideas and inspirations. Yeah, absolutely. And you you, you do take from it what you need at that moment, I yeah, feel. You, you see what, what you're thinking about, right? And it, it yeah. all kind of um, and I, pulls together. I enjoy being a curator, too, because you see all kinds of different art and new art and yeah fresh art right that you know like you say you can take what you want or need from it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and develop it yourself right you know i think you know we think we learn it all in graduate school or in art school but i think most of it you learn by trying it yourself and experimenting yeah i agree i didn't yeah. go to art school or grad school <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I didn't learn. I didn't learn any of this in art school. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Jane, it's been a real treat. Tell me, tell us where we can find you online. Okay, um, I have an old website that's mostly archival now. I haven't updated it in a while, and I use a WordPress site. It's janeingramallen.wordpress.com. dot com. Okay, and, um, I update that fairly often and try to use it, you know, to document my recent projects. And you can go back through the archives and mm -hmm. find, mm -hmm. find all of these projects mentioned on there. Yeah. 
my old website has, you know, older work before 2015, I think, when I started. Like, I don't want to do this updating the <laughs> website anymore. Right. And that's janeingramallen.com. Yeah. yeah. And then and you're on Instagram. Still, it's still there. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah right. Mm-hmm. And you're on Instagram under your name as well. Right, right, right. And I have a lot of other sites that I put up stuff occasionally that are, you know, like membership. I'm in Weed, which is Women Eco Artist Dialogue, W E O D. And they have a, a site. And I'm also in a group that's a sort of Northern California group, Pacific Rim Sculptors. Okay. And I'm involved with that um, as a sculptor. Yeah. <laughs> so it, you know, gives you um, other options. Right. Putting your work out there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when you belong to other organizations. Yeah. Well, wonderful. Uh, it's been great chatting and thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for this opportunity. It's great you're doing this. Thank you, Helen. Hey, paper friends. Did you know that I write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper? Sign up at helenhebertstudio.com slash blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here, and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about free tutorials, online classes, workshops, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert Studio. You can find out more at helenhebertstudio.com. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed the show, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps others find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com and click on Podcast, where you can find out more about these guys, subscribe to this series via iTunes, and listen to other episodes and access all of the archived shows. Talk to you soon. There's a reason, besides the season, the main